This is Revolution at Sea with John Curtis Perry. Part 2, Oceanic Revolution Begins. Episode 4, Iberia and Oceanic Revolution. We now come to the heart of our subject, Oceanic Revolution, and we first move to the shores of Iberia, Portugal and Spain, from which it sprang. Part 2. Oceanic Revolution Begins What we arguably might call the two greatest transformations in modern history were both of European initiative and would propel the North Atlantic into global preeminence, which it would maintain well into the 20th century. The first was an oceanic revolution erupting at the turn of the 15th century, the late 1400s and early 1500s. The second transformation would be the Industrial Revolution, beginning around 1780. Both had oceanic impact. It is the first that I want us to think about now. Over three centuries from the mid-1400s, to the mid-1700s, Europeans opened the oceans of the world to sustained communication by exploiting world watery space in addition to terrestrial. They created a new kind of political and economic organism that was both global and oceanic. Both these characteristics carried powerful impact. Moving outwards... Europeans made the Atlantic the inland sea of Western civilization and by tapping the energy of wind and current made the world ocean a newly available space. They fashioned a web of interconnected avenues and arenas serving as conveyor belts in saltwater space, thereby hugely expanding the scope of world commerce and cultural interactions, although the content remained thin. By bringing their wars and their politics to that saltwater space, Oceanic Europe introduced the idea that sovereignty over the oceans could be claimed. By their ability to dominate the high seas, Europeans made the world ocean a European affair but much of continental space lying beyond the range of a seaborne cannon shot remained untouched by European power and influence until much later. As one scholar puts it, the lords of the land coexisted with the masters of the sea. During this early modern period, until the Industrial Revolution, the world's states and societies remain very much compartmentalized with limited interpenetration or even contact. Notable exceptions were zoological, animals and plants, and biological, microbial, which were interchanges affecting both parties, the Atlantic and the rest of the world. The new intercontinental commercial maritime trade 
was of great importance to Europe, but it brought minimal impact to the commercial life of African and Asian societies whose ports Europeans frequented. America, the New World, was different. There, Europeans colonized large parts and early on brought demographic catastrophe to local peoples. This meant decimation of at least one-tenth of planetary population, perhaps even 20%. Peoples of the New World proved vulnerable to European diseases such as smallpox, measles, diphtheria. These people did not live in proximity with large domestic animals, especially cattle and pigs. Thus, they lacked the immunities that that closeness carried and which Europeans experienced. Mesoamerican urbanization accelerated the process. It was said the mere breath of a Spaniard was enough to make a native die. How did it happen? We looked briefly at possible alternative initiators such as China, really the only serious potential contender. The short answer why that colossus failed to take to the ocean in a serious, continuous way was the agrarian focus of the established imperial order and its brilliant success that inhibited any impetus for real change. Private interests exhibited in a big regional maritime presence could not overcome the power of the bureaucracy and the firm grip of its conventional wisdoms. Why Europe? The subject is highly vulnerable to monocausal theorists and to the cultural narcissism of many historians in the Atlantic world. Economics, politics, sociology, psychology, geography, all play a role, but we have as yet no firm consensus. One of the reasons for European initiatives might be poverty. The impetus to move out came from the margin of the Western Eurasian margin, peninsular Europe, where poverty was conspicuous, especially on the coastal fringes. Iberia was part of that periphery, less developed than the central Mediterranean Italian maritime city-states. Iberia was more pastoral than agricultural or commercial. Hunger drove Portuguese mariners deep into the North Atlantic, where they found some of the world's richest fishing grounds, and cod becomes a staple on the Portuguese table. But the age of exploration in the 1400s begins southward with Portuguese voyages down the African coast, the lure being gold. Africa was a major source of that, and of slaves, too, as a commercial commodity. A second was an environment of internal competition. Europe, unlike China, conspicuously failed to achieve political unity. 
Europeans yearned for it. The Holy Roman Empire was the medieval expression of longing for an unfulfilled centrality, reflecting the powerful, lingering image of Rome. Fragmentation carried advantages. It made Europe safe from single-stroke conquest from without. And a world of emerging nation-states competes savagely. Western Europe becomes a large-scale version of pre-imperial China, classical Greece or Renaissance Italy, with small states of great cultural vitality, providing a contest among equals with no obvious hegemon and a stimulating intellectual environment. A third motivator was the power of the faith, burning with special intensity in Iberian Catholicism, driven in part by hatred of Islam. Spanish oceanic conquest can be regarded as a continuation of the Reconquista, the war of reconquest that for eight centuries had thrust the Christian princely states of northern Iberia southward against the world of Islam, thus generating a frontier spirit nurtured and undergirded by an aristocratic sense of chivalry laid out in an extensive literature absorbed by all the elite. Here was a military ethos derived from combat, rising out of internal competition among the Christian states of the Iberian Peninsula, as well as against the Islamic Moor. The secular disposition of many historians has tended to downplay the importance of religious passion in exploration and discovery. We can see a fusion of powerful emotions, God and glory, the church militant embodied in the Jesuit order, soldiers of Christ, and in the Spanish monarchy, Ferdinand and Isabella entitled as their Catholic majesties. They and their successors saw themselves as the sword of Christianity. A fourth motivator, if you are counting, was technology, evolving new and constantly improving sails, ships, and guns, the tools of exploration. The sailing ship becomes a gun platform to mount a broadside, with many guns firing along the entire length of the ship. Europeans used advanced metallurgy to cast cannon, having had much experience with handling large volumes of metal drawn from casting church bells. People understood the bigger and better guns promoted power. The first cannons were crude and cumbersome. Thus, the advantage was largely psychological, a matter of sight and sound. Gradually, they improve and become militarily significant. The evolving gun with improving barrel, shot, and carriage gave ships the ability to carry firepower efficiently. The weight and power of cannon massed on ship 
far surpassed that used in land warfare. Single ships could carry far more guns than did entire armies, since water has less friction than ground. Yet another phenomenon was intellectual, book learning, stimulated by printing. In the maritime world, this meant coupling knowledge of geography and astronomy with tools, the charts and instruments for navigation, plus experience with winds and currents, thus putting together a rich combination of knowledge and skills by fusing the abstract with the tangible. Learning the wind systems of the Atlantic became a key to the entire enterprise. Islands en route seemed to be there for the taking, staging grounds in effect. Notably, the Canaries served as a base athwart Atlantic trade winds, offering a central position in the Atlantic, providing access to wind systems leading to the Caribbean and the rest of the world, a major key to Spanish global oceanic success. The Portuguese used Madeira and the Azores as their bases. After mastering the high Atlantic, in 1498, Portuguese explorers in their sleek caravels rounded the Cape of Good Hope after shedding its first name as the Cape of Torments. They landed in Calicut, on India's Malabar coast, and over the next century, the Portuguese created an intercontinental trading network, an edge gained by using ships effectively. For mariners, wind power meant endurance, the ability to travel great distances and to stay at sea for periods as long as the crew could endure it. Thus, with increasingly powerful gunned ships. Europeans created a new means of long-distance, even global, power projection. However, these sailing ships in remote waters had limited value in inshore, deltaic, riverine environments. Their advantage lay in deep waters, where they could command a steady wind. There they could form an offensive force operating largely independently of the shore. The great world historian William H. McNeil judges the sailing ship armed with cannon as perhaps the first instance in which Western Europeans begin to leave behind other civilizations in at least one important aspect. Others may have had ships with guns, but they did not compare in quality with the Europeans. Thus came about a maritime phenomenon that was revolutionary in range, revolutionary in impact. Using the gunned warship in the time of scarcely more than one generation, 1492 to 1521, from Columbus to Magellan, in a great burst of energy, Europeans built the world's first global oceanic system, in part on the basis of existing regional systems 
such as the Indian Ocean. This is why they could do it so quickly. In the Atlantic, Europe had no rival. It offered an empty space, a new frontier to the West. The Pacific was totally new for Europeans, and so immense as to take much longer to explore thoroughly. Sailing under the flag of Castile, Magellan headed westward across the Pacific, enabling the King of Spain to boast that it was now a Spanish lake, thus making it a potential theater for power conflict. Ironically, Magellan was Portuguese and his crew was multinational, illustrating the international character of so much of oceanic enterprise from the very start. No other voyage has ever added so much to understanding the dimension of the globe. Magellan's was probably the most remarkable feat of navigation under sail. Success was due to a sophisticated development of ships and ways to navigate them with new weaponry aboard, backed by organizational frameworks and knowledge, capital, and people contributed by proto-oceanic Italian maritime city-states, notably Venice and Genoa. Oceanic revolution cannot be identified exclusively with any one European nation or society, but it began as an Iberian enterprise. And we can think of the Portuguese as pioneers. Join us next time in episode 5 as we follow the history of the pioneering Portuguese. Revolution at Sea is written and spoken by John Curtis Perry with additional voicing by Jamie Rosenberg. Production by 1623 Studios in Gloucester, Massachusetts. Post-production and distribution by Albert Buichade Foray. Goodbye until next time.